0: You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning. Um, I'm not six foot nine like Sean, so I might just stand up on the, uh, on the stage if that's okay. Uh, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the regulars here. It really is a privilege to be able to stand up here this morning and Uh, open up God's word with you. Normally at this point I'll do a little bit of an introduction, trying to convince you all that we need to look at this idea of contentment. But if you're anything like me, you probably need a talk on contentment. I certainly do. I would love some answers in this space, some methods to deal with life, something, anything to help. But we're all in very different spots when it comes to this issue Uh, this topic of contentment, and perhaps even anxiety too. And I want to acknowledge that for some of us, it's really quite a serious issue. This morning's talk, though, is less to do with the topic of anxiety and more to do with the pursuit of contentment. And although contentment and anxiety are somewhat opposites and therefore sort of related, I think what we'll see is that as we study this pursuit of contentment, we won't be able to help but sort of bump up into this topic of anxiety, sometimes a bit uncomfortably. There is really so much to say on this topic of contentment. People have spent their whole life dedicated to just studying contentment. So needless to say, we're only going to scratch the very surface on this topic this morning. I want to clarify from the outset something that this talk isn't or that this passage that we're looking today isn't. This passage, I think, isn't just telling us to cheer up, to suck it up, put your chin up, be more content. It's not doing that at all. Because the reality is, is that not everything is okay in the world we live in, is it? 50 people were killed in New Zealand last Friday. Over 500 are dead because of the recent cyclone in Mozambique and Zimbabwe. The Syrian war goes on. The world we live in, it, it has its troubles, doesn't it? And even your own life probably has its troubles. We lose people, don't we? Our relationships break down. We get sick. Life is difficult. And this passage isn't a passage just telling you just to suck it up, it'll be okay, or even worse, just glass it over and just pretend to be content. The passage isn't saying that at all. So my hope is today that we can sort of gather up the big ideas from this text to start us on or to accelerate our journey in learning the art of practiced contentment. That's my hope for today. I hope that from the text we can see or we can recognize a pattern of practice that God has given us to be able to deal with the world that we find ourselves in today, a challenging world. And my hope is that we don't just sort of see these things that God has given us as something abstract from us, separated from us, that we might be able to see these tools that he's given us and actually, believe it or not, use them. That's my hope for this morning. See, often when we talk about contentment, rightfully what we do is we talk about the truths, the foundational truths of Christianity on which contentment is built. And that's what I want to do this morning. But I just want to touch on those. Because it's these foundational truths that sort of form the backdrop of our passage for this morning, and really the foundation of this idea of contentment. But sometimes what we do is we talk about the truths of the Bible, we talk about these big ideas of God, something like God is good as being a foundation of our contentment, which is so accurate and so helpful. But sometimes we think about these truths sort of from a distance, And we don't actually ask ourselves the question or discuss, well, what do we do with these truths? And this morning, I want us to see in this passage that the Bible has something to say, not just about what to believe, but what we do with these beliefs in the day today. We have our foundational truths here, which is in essence the truth of the Bible, and there's a lot in there, and then truths that we can actually do, things that we can actually act on. And it's this second half that I want to focus on this morning. So what do you do when you wake up on a Tuesday morning and you just don't feel that good? Like, what do you actually do when it's been three days or three weeks or, or three months or three years of feeling down? What do you personally do? Like actually, what do you, what's the next step? See, this morning what I, I think we'll see is that the Bible has something to say on this topic of doing Not just what to believe, but actually what to do, and gives us some of those practical tools. Before we do, I need prayer. I think we all need prayer. So let's just pray together to God um, for our time this morning. Dear God, I pray that as we read these 11 verses this morning, you might help us see their meaning in clear sight, and that our understanding of them will give birth to real change in our lives. Amen. There's this song, uh, it's a hymn actually, by a guy called Horatio Spafford. I don't know, I probably got that all wrong. I don't know how to say his name, but it's a pretty cool name. I wish I had a name like that. My name's Matt. Thanks, Mum. Thanks, Dad. Appreciate that. Um, My name's Matt. This guy's name is Horatio Spafford. Really amazing uh, hymn writer. And he wrote some great songs. There's one that he wrote that's called It Is Well With My Soul. And he wrote this. He wrote... When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Trust me, you're glad I didn't sing it. I thought, oh, should I sing No, I definitely shouldn't sing it, particularly after Dave just sung. Oh, it would have been bad. This guy Horatio and his wife Anna, their family had a really interesting story. Five kids in Chicago in the late 1800s. And unfortunately for this family, the Spaffords, they weren't weren't strangers to tragedy. In 1871, their son died of pneumonia. That same year, they lost nearly all of their business to the famous Chicago fires. Really devastating. They were able to reclaim some of their business, thankfully. Two years later, in 1873, Anna, Horatio's wife, was travelling on a boat from the USA into Europe and she was travelling with her four daughters. So Anna and the four daughters were on on the boat and as they were travelling, the boat somehow collided with another boat and the boat went down. 226 of the 300-odd people on the boat died. Anna survived. The four daughters went down with the boat. Anna uh, wrote, wired a message to her husband and said, Saved alone, what should I do? Devastating. Horatio jumped on the next boat that he could and went to go and meet his grieving wife. It was on this four-day journey, on this boat trip, that he wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul. What could compel someone to write such a song in such a moment? What understanding, what craziness, what belief, what foundation was there to be able to give someone the strength to say, that enabled him to say, it is still well with my soul? And as people, I think we look at ways of dealing with some of these questions Look at ways of making our lives a little bit better. It's no wonder the self-help industry is over $13 billion. There's over 45,000 books in circulation on self-help at the moment because people are interested. People want to know answers to some of these questions. This morning in our passage, I think we'll recognise the Bible has something to say, really, really meaningful to say, not just as a self-help book, There's something far bigger than that, far, far greater. It actually presents God's tools, the things he's given us to help deal with the day-to-day and even major life calamity. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to unpack some of these tools, um, but I want to make one important note before we start unpacking the tools. It's actually not the tools in and of themselves, these things that God has given us to do, that give us contentment. It's actually the truths of the Bible that underpin our contentment. They are the source of our contentment. And I'll flesh this idea out this morning. It's important that as we look at these tools that we also look at these foundational truths from the Bible as really the basis of our contentment because they're both the basis of our contentment and they form the background of our text. And in Philippians 1, 2, and 3, today we're in chapter 4, he talks a lot about some of these truths. And so I just want to highlight some, just some of the background, the bigger picture of what the Bible says in some big topics. We're just going to look at a few examples. I'm not going to spend much time really going into them with too much detail. But what, we'll, what you'll notice as we look at these truths is that our fa- foundational beliefs, these things to believe, and the things we do are really related, aren't they? Like what we believe and what we think and what we do is thoroughly, intrinsically related. And we'll see this in our passage. Okay, one of the very first things that we see in the Bible is that God is good. This is one big foundational element of the Bible. Okay, Another one is that God is in control. And like I said, we're not going to go through each of these. These are just for the background. I've got some passages there in case you want to jump in in your own time. Another big truth that Christians often talk about in this this, uh, discussion and contentment is that Christians can be forgiven by God. And that's based on the assumption that humans need forgiveness. And the Bible goes to great lengths to say, actually, we do. The Bible also says that, that Christians can have a clear identity as children of God. You can actually know who you are. Even more than that, we can have a relationship restored with God. Something broken can be fixed. Even more than that, we can know our final destination, you can actually know what happens when you die, the Bible seems to say. And the last one I wanted to highlight as an example is that God's justice will prevail. In the end, a just God will actually bring about justice. And these are just some of the examples of the Bible that we build our contentment on as the basis of our contentment. And if you're someone new to church or someone that hasn't spent much time in the Bible, what you, this might be a little bit overwhelming And I apologise for that, but I encourage you to jump in head first and to read the Bible and to test these, think through these, see whether these really are these foundational truths that I'm discussing, because they form the basis of so much of our lives. These are significant things to believe and to debate and to discuss, and that's why we're here. See, imagine for a second, just imagine that the God of the universe was here, okay? He was standing right here, and he said to you personally, Sean Barnes... Matter Hearn, Jade, I am truly good. Imagine he's saying this to you. I am truly good. I'm in control of all of this, everything you see, and you have been forgiven everything you've ever done wrong. You're my child. We're in personal relationship, you and I. I can assure you that in the end, everything will be okay. Imagine if God could make you this promise. Imagine if you could say that in the end, everything will be okay. My justice will prevail. How would you feel? Content? I know I would. And these are some of the foundational truths, the promises that God does make to us in the Bible, and these are the basis of contentment. But life gets busy, doesn't it? Life gets hard. And sometimes we wake up on that Tuesday morning and we go, oh, yeah, I remember all those truths that... We talk about it at Side. I remember all those things up on the screen, and I even remember some of the Bible passages. I can recite them, but I'm just not feeling that good. And there's this separation that can happen between the truths and what we're doing and what we're feeling, and that's what this passage addresses. And so in our passage, we're picking up at the end of a letter written by a guy named Paul to a church in Philippi, hence Philippians. It's just a little letter we're picking up at the end, and it's sort of often called Paul's final remarks or his closing appeal. He's like, hey, church, guys, guys, these are some big things. Listen up. And so let's listen up. Let's dive in. Let's read, again, just quickly, 6 and 7. Don't be anxious about anything. I encourage you, jump into your Bible, have a look up on the page behind me. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How much are we to be anxious about? Nothing. Paul seems to be presenting some sort of impossibility here. Anxious about nothing? Are you serious? Have you lived in Sydney for 15 minutes? Have you sat in traffic for an hour? Have you been made to watch Married at First Sight for the last... Three months, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Don't be anxious. Have you had a horrendous day at work? Have you had a family member pass away? Don't be anxious. No, but in every situation, pray, present your requests to God, do something. He says, and the first tool that I think God has given us is to pray with thankfulness. This is something to do, this is a response to those foundational truths. But I want to ask you a personal question, don't all answer at once. What's the first thing you do when you get stressed? What's the first thing you do when there's been something really bad happen at work or a big decision that needs to get made about where our kids go to school or, you know, gluten-free or, I don't know, these big life decisions? What do you do? What's the first thing that you do? You probably speak to a loved one, go for a jog, binge eat kilos of pasta. That's my way of coping. What do you do when you're stressed? Do you pray? Do you pray? Do you in every situation pray? If something was big enough that it would threaten anxiety, surely you would pray about it. Wouldn't your natural inclination be to speak to your closest friend? Wouldn't your natural inclination to be to speak to a God who is thoroughly in control? and in whom you've got a close relationship, isn't that the obvious first response? Well, yes, but often we don't, do we? God says, come to him. In fact, he invites us to come to him, to a listening ear, to a God who's all in control, who wants our good, and yet sometimes we might be stressed for weeks before we even think to pray to him. Crazy, in one sense. And the peace of God... Which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. One of the things that I realized this week is that it seems to me like the practice of prayer lays a foundation in our lives so that when stuff gets really bad, we've got a strength that's built on a close relationship with God. See, anxiety can hit us in the most disastrous of ways. It's hidden. It's deceitful. It's hard to recognise. It can sneak up on us and catch us by surprise. It impacts more of our lives than we realise. Anxiety casts the shadow wider and deeper than what we often can even recognise in our own lives. And guys, God gives us a tool to combat it. This is why he says... Hey, church in Philippi, be prayers. Have lives characterized by prayer. Train yourselves, practice yourself so that your very first, your clutch inclination is to present your requests to God and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's no surprise to me. God has made us. He wants us to come to him and he works to relieve our anxiety. Nearly everyone agrees that what the passage isn't saying is pray once, anxiety is gone. Tick. Remember, Paul here is talking to a church community and, 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 and talking about a pattern of life, a practice pattern of prayer about a people group who pray. They will be a people group spared of much anxiety. don't know whether you noticed it, but this peace seems to be a lot bigger than just an absence of anxiety. Sometimes that we think, I'll be peaceful once... No, no, this piece is bigger than that. This piece surpasses all understanding. I don't know whether you noticed that in the text. I certainly took a few readings to to recognise it, but this piece that God can give us, it's actually bigger than us. We're actually caught up in something bigger than even ourselves. Can you start to see the relationship between prayer and contentment? It really is profound. When we pray, God says something happens to our hearts and our minds. If prayer can do that, I want it. I want to do it. I don't know about you. So I think it's important at this point we just stop for a second and, and just have a quick think about what does he mean here by prayer? He mentions prayer and he mentions petition, doesn't he? He separates the two. And petition is really about coming to God and asking God for something. It's considered by most to be that the reason Paul separates out prayer general, petition-specific is because Paul wants us to recognize here that when he mentions prayer, he's talking about prayer in the freest, fullest sense of the word, all communication to God, all communication to God. Spoken word like thanks and adoration and a lament, maybe a complaint, maybe a question, maybe it's a request, maybe it's saying sorry, but also the unspoken words of prayer like contemplation silent submission, maybe a prayer of quiet trust. See, when we understand what's meant here by prayer, we realise that the distinction between prayer and the rest of our lives, particularly our conscious thought, is often quite subtle. It's just not asking us to pray for something. This is a far higher level of communion with God. It's the quiet moment before you go to bed. It's the opportunity to worship as you look at the stars. It's the moment of quiet thanks. It's tears of questioning. Prayer is about living out the relationship between us and God. It's about communion with God, coming into his presence and being oh so aware of our reliance on him. This one's quite important. If you've fallen asleep, this is probably a bit of a point just to listen again. Prayer isn't, a magical act it's not as though prayer in and of itself as if I could pray to this chair did something or would do something or bring contentment prayer is not a magical act but it's about the subject of our attention it's not prayer is the magic it's about our focus point and where is our focus point God God that's when our hearts and minds are changed, when we're in communion with God. Now, I just want to make one other point here about the nature of the prayer being discussed. Now, this is certainly no prayer instructional guide in the passage, but there is one critical hint that Paul gives us here, and it's one critical element of prayer, and that is thanksgiving. See, it's no coincidence here that when we come to God with a certain stance, it breeds humility in us, humility in us, and that is a position of thanksgiving. As we're reminded of who God is and who we are, we can't help but be reminded of our humility. And often in times of anxiety, I'm sure you've experienced this, in times of anxiety, our attention can be monopolised. It's the great negative that's hanging over us. All of our attention and all of our focus goes towards that one thing. Last night we were out at a friend's house and he was cooking dinner and when this guy says he's going to cook dinner for you, you get there 20 minutes early, you haven't eaten for a week and a half. Like this guy's a cook and he was doing duck fat, it's a thing, duck fat potatoes and and sweet potatoes and pumpkin with this amazing beef. He was getting the, the tray out of the oven and his finger went into the duck fat. And you could just see, he just leaps back from the oven. He just burnt the end of his finger, tiny. He just burnt the end of his finger. It was barely, like, he didn't splash it on himself. like, come on, mate, relax. It stole absolutely every bit of his attention. The tiniest little burn on the end of his finger, all of his attention went to his finger. And he was carrying on, oh, it's a burn on the end of his finger. <laughs> Our anxieties can be exactly the same. One little thing overshadows everything. It draws all of our attention, all of our affection, everything we have to give is just being plunged into this negative part of our life. Why does he say come to God with a stance of thanksgiving? Because it repositions our heart. It gives us some perspective. It gives us some understanding about what we're doing when we're coming into this communion with God. And see, modern psychology really seems very supportive on Thanksgiving. Now, my mum's a psychologist, so I'm a little bit nervous about saying this here in front of her. But, But modern psychology really does support the idea that Thanksgiving and gratitude works. There's a really strong correlation between being thankful and general life positivity, good health, good sleep, capacity to deal with adversity and contentment and happiness in general because God's built us this way. That's why coming to him in thankful prayer in the most difficult situation breeds contentment. And we see this model of prayer right throughout the Bible. In the Psalms, they did it. They prayed all the time, even in the difficult situations. Think about what Jesus did. A few days out from his crucifixion, he runs to God in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. See, our passage today tells us that this peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. From what? Well, probably a whole host of things, but definitely from the anxieties of life that threaten our lives within the context and through our relationship with God. See, it seems that this relationship that we can have with God is because of the proximity and the intimacy and the confidence in being able to come to Him in prayer and find refuge in Him. Find refuge in Him. What a resource! Imagine if you had access to the God of the universe that you could speak to and things might actually happen. You'd have to be some sort of crazy person to not use this resource, right? Well, often I'm a crazy person too. We have the God of the universe there ready to listen and yet so often we don't. One thing even in my short life I've realised and the Bible tells us is that everything else will let us down except God. There's nothing that's been created, that can bear the weight of all of our attention, all of our affection, all of our love but God. Everything else will fall down. If it's your job and you're giving it everything and it's your absolute, it will fall down. If it's your health and you're giving it everything and it is your everything, it will fall down. If it's people, they're not perfect either. God is the only one that can bear the weight of all of our affection and attention and so God promises his model works. And we read, read with me, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, what's right, whatever's pure, what is, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the peace of God will be with you. The second thing to do is to think, and the next two are very uh, substantially quicker. The passage really quite clear. God works towards our peace. We can pursue God through praying and through thought. I don't know if you've ever thought about your mind as a tool that actually God has given us to appreciate him. Where do we find these things that are noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable? It's so obvious. They're right here. They're beneath your seat. You might not think twice about it today, but it's all here. So easy, isn't it? It's so difficult and yet so countercultural. Spending time reading and thinking about the contents of this book is a promise, will change your life and will breed more contentment. That's not a promise from Matt Stenmark, that's a promise from the God of the universe and thank goodness for that. That's because spending time doing this helps us understand. Remember some of those foundational truths? Remember the basis of our contentment? Spending time doing this is good for us. God has created us this way. And I think when Paul is talking about thinking here, he's not just talking about a fleeting moment. He's talking about considered time, real time. And these truths that we discussed earlier are to be loved and cherished and actively thought about. If we really believed that this was a source of understanding and contentment with our prayers, that this is what we do in our pursuit of contentment, we'd have to be some sort of crazy person not to read it, wouldn't we? Well, me too. I'm sometimes crazy. The hope that we have in God is a foundation, is such such a it's such a strength for these truths and a bedrock for our daily contentment as we practice prayer and understanding God's Word. And it's through prayer and through thought that we can pursue our daily contentment in God. We really see that prayer and thought are two critical elements to our daily and lifelong contentment. But the last thing that we see is that, as the final um, element, is that it is also about putting it into practice, Did you see it there? Put it into practice. It says, do what we have learnt. Apply what you know. Spending good time, doing good things leads to contentment. And this is about living out our life day by day consistently in accordance with the truths of the Bible that I discussed earlier. It's about being a person of action and not just talk. It's a simple idea but a difficult challenge. And so today we see in the passage that God has given us prayer and His word, and that we're to do something with it. That's my hope for us. And do something like what? Well, like pray and spend time thinking critically so that we can understand Him, come close to Him, and have a relationship with Him. That's what produces contentment. And so I just want to read the very final part of. The passage in closing. Have a read with me. These are some remarkable words. There are our three. Pray, think, do. Paul says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. Listen to this. I have learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is craziness. Contentment in every situation? Really? Well fed or hungry? This guy Paul spent a lot of his time in jail. This guy Paul spent a lot of his time getting flogged for talking about Jesus. Content in every situation? If I get the wrong milk in my almond decaf, three quarter strength, extra hot latte, I'm not content. Jail, well-fed, hungry, losing four daughters, contentment. That's a crazy, crazy challenge. But I think God has given us some resources. I might just invite the band up now um, because we'll get a chance to respond in song. But as they do, I just want to make something, I guess, a closing and summary point. Ultimate contentment, I encourage you to listen to this part. This is the summary of sort of what I got from this passage, I guess. Ultimate contentment is not the result of a momentary decision of our will. Hear that? Ultimate contentment, it's not the result of a momentary decision of our will as if we can just produce contentment like this. I'll just be content. I'll just decide to be content. It's not just the result of our will saying, let's do it. It's it's not that at all. It's through the process, the process and the result of embracing God for who he is, loving his plan in what he wants to do and knowing who we are. That's what produces contentment. And prayer and thought are two critical tools God has given us to help us understand and to love him. Contentment isn't something we do, it's something we're taught as we come to God and spend communion time in communion with him. It's not a fake happy, is it? It's not about putting on a smile, glossing over and saying, it's all okay in the world. It's not. But it's about being able to say, about being able to know that God has given us capacity for contentment so that even through tears, we can say, it is well with my soul. When the tragedy of life comes, and for most of us it will at some point, we can say, because of who God is and not because of who we are, because of our communion with God, because of our love and our relationship with God, practiced through prayer and thought, we can say, It is well with my soul. Are you content? My prayer is that each of us in the room would come to God and find our contentment in Him.